Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 13th, 2017, and this is episode 1951 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday. That means it's a show where I'm taking your feedback and giving you some updates about what's going on here at Nine Mile Farm. It's a typical Monday. And i got to say, this Monday's a good one because even though it's kind of dreary and cold and not very nice outside, it was pretty nice this weekend. Saturday was amazing. And I had a GSD weekend. That's a get-shit-done weekend. I got quite a bit of stuff done here. I'll talk a little bit about some of the things I did. Put out some videos this weekend, some other good stuff. Put the videos on the blog this morning. Uh, so, you know, I'm in an upbeat mood. You always feel good when you're getting things done. In the last month, it's been kind of crappy in, in that regard and a lot of setbacks. So uh, hopefully I'll be in a good mood to be do, able to do a lot of good stuff for you. Uh, I have an update from Alex Shrugged on his downtime for you this week. He is back doing the history segment. He's actually getting some assistance from someone else you'll hear about today. That guy's name is Ben. He chips in on the uh, wiki history segments now. And I'll talk a little bit about... Um, I'll just talk about it when I get to it, okay? About, you know, people, you know, people not wanting to step on each other's toes in the wiki. That's not how a wiki works. A wiki is a duocracy. And Alex does a great job, but if you want to contribute to the wiki, please do. And not necessarily just the history segment. It's a pretty awesome thing, RTSP wiki. Uh, we'll give you an update on the stuff for this weekend at my Nine Mile Farm. As I'm calling it, a bit of GSD reporting. Um, question on Dr. Christopher's tissue and bone ointment and how I actually use it. A listener has that for me. Uh, I've been asked for my view as a voluntarist on national parks. Should the federal government protect land? And uh, generally my answer to the question was, should the government, and as soon as you get to that, unless you are using the next word is stop or cease or just, you know stop doing something, the answer is no. But there's also the practical side of things to me, so I'll talk about that today. Uh, I have a question on podcast length, specifically how short is too short for a podcast. Um, I have a question on tarred line for wilderness kits and bug out kits and stuff like that versus parachute cord. Uh, I have a question on how I keep my file sizes so small while still keeping like FM radio quality audio here at the Survival Podcast. At least most of the time. We have some struggles sometimes on um, interviews. That's usually to do with something to do with the connection or something to do with the, the guest side of things. But in general, we keep really high audio quality here, and yet my podcast downloads really fast, even for those of you without the greatest Internet connection. I'll talk about how I do that. Um, I have another listener reporting back to us with his own GSD report, getting shit done with his own business. Kind of a cool one. You definitely want to check out his website today. And I have a question on GMOs. Do I hate all of them or only some of them and why? You'll understand when I actually take that question. And I have a question about freedom. And the question is, do enough people want true freedom to, quote, restore the republic? Do enough people even want it to restore the republic? And we're going to even talk about, well, what exactly would we restore it to? All that more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. 
Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at knifekits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out readymaderesources.com to learn more today. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is JC Custom Slings. They provide nylon three-point and traditional two-point slings for all popular rifle and shotgun models. JC uses polymer buckles, which are lighter, quieter, and have a better bite than metal. Check out JC's listing on the TSP Business Directory. And remember, your business can be listed in our business directory for as little as five bucks per every six months, allowing you to reach the entire community of survival podcast listeners. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Alex Shrugged, as I had said, has returned, and uh, he has an entry, entry on the um, wiki called Alex Shrugged Meets the Joker. I'm going to actually read that as part of the main show today because it's more feedback from one of our community members. Um, I also have a segment from Alex here called Korea and the Creation of a Super Presidency. Uh, next, I have the Rosenbergs and the Red Scare, uh, which is uh, an interesting one. Uh, also by Alex, and I have by Southpaw Ben, who I'll talk about in a little bit, the 22nd Amendment ratified at last. Notable births this year, I have Rush Limbaugh, Jim DeMint, U.S. Senator from South Carolina and President of the Heritage Foundation, Al Franklin, Saturday Night Live comedian, U.S. Senator, the fact that he's a senator for Minnesota just proves to you that there's people with mental damage running Minnesota. Uh, Lisa Hallaby, American-born Queen Noor of Jordan, as wife of late King Hussein. And Sally Ride, physicist, astronaut, first woman in space, first American woman in space. She also died in space. Uh, no, Sally Ride didn't die in space. She died in 20, 2012. I'm thinking of somebody else because this brought back a, a memory for me very, very quickly about the uh, space program and when I was a child living in Florida when another uh, female astronaut did actually die. Uh, so I got that wrong. Randy Schiltz uh, died in 1994, age 42, reporter and author of And the Band Played On that brought attention to the AIDS epidemic. And entertainment, born this year, Mark Hamill, of course, Luke Skywalker, Christy Alley uh, from Star Trek's Lieutenant Savick and the Wrath of Khan, uh, TV's Cheers, and to me it was all downhill from there. Kurt Russell, Big Trouble in Little China, Overboard, Stargate, and a lot more. Robin Williams died in 2014 at age 63. Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Poets Society, Hook, Jumanji, and, and much more. Um, I think Dead Poets Society was a really amazing movie. It really was, and, and was Robin Williams at his best. Uh, Good Morning Vietnam was pretty good as well. Good Will Hunting, he was pretty good in that. Uh, Robin seems to be one of those guys that was so tormented by his own talent that the end that came had to be that way. Uh, almost expected. That's my thoughts, not Alex's or Ben's. Anyway, this year in film, Quo Vanis starring Robert Taylor and Deborah Kerr. Emperor Nero's reign ends badly. Uh, Disney's Alice in Wonderland is born is, is created this year. She falls down the rabbit hole. The day the earth stood still. Uh, it was also from this year. In music, Unforgettable by Nat King Cole, Cry by Johnny Ray, and Hello Young Lovers. The one I'm going to read today is The Rosenbergs and the Red Scare because it sets us on a pathway that uh, that has a lot to do with how the next years are shaped in our country. 
A family that spies together dies together. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are young and loyal communists, a dying breed in America. They're getting the electric chair for giving the secrets of the atomic bomb to the Soviets. Did they do it? Yes, they did. But enough doubt has been cast on their case that it seems as though they were framed. Additionally, their sensational trial and execution has led to worry about other communists lurking inside the government or under the bed. Senator Joseph McCarthy fans those flames. Burn the witches. Oh, sorry, actually, the law in place is to root out traitors have already done their work. The worst of the communist infiltrators, and it was real, were in the Treasury Department and the Manhattan Project. That damage is already done and the traitors are dead in prison or sidelined. Next will come an endless parade of foolish followers of fading communist dream being harassed and pilloried by the House Un-American Activities Committee, not the Senate. At this moment, Stalin is wandering through a dream world. His pay envelopes pile up on his desk unopened. It's getting close to checkout time. I hope he doesn't forget to tip the bellboy on the way out. My take by Alex Shrug. The name Rosenberg is a common German name. It means Red Mountain. It is not particularly a Jewish name, but in the case of Julius and Ethel Rosenberger, Rosenberg, it is. As a Jew myself, that is Alex Shrugged. I find it embarrassing that the Rosenbergs were Jewish, but many Jews found com communism appealing at the time. On its surface, communism seems like a biblical promise come true, a way to help the unfortunate care for the sick. Even today, I see socialism and communism being promoted as a biblical truth. Yet while I see the Bible exhorting us to help our fellows in need, it is a call for the individual to do so, not the government. Voting to force someone else to do a good deed does not earn me extra good guy points in heaven, so to speak. Thus, while God tells me that I should provide food for the hungry, I don't have to bring it to them unless they're sick. They can come get it and do some minimal work for it, if only to sift through the shaft and carry away the seed. What government has to do with it, I have no idea, unless government is trying to take the place of God. Indeed, I often feel that government is trying to take the place of God, and I feel that statism is the most uh, insidious religion on the planet. And a lot of people do, in one way or another, seem to worship the state. But I'll leave that go. I, I, I just wanted to kind of comment about Alex's reference here. He says, they can come get it and do some minimal, minimal work for it, if only to sift through the shaft and carry away the seed. As I started reading his feedback on this one, my mind immediately went to where he referenced. I don't know the chapter and verse or whatever, but there is a part of the Bible in the Old Testament that basically, in talking about the way that we should make allowances for the poor, one of the things it says is when you go through and harvest your field, especially when you think of the way fields were harvested at this time, there's going to be a lot of grain heads and leftover bits in the field. And that you shouldn't go back through and pick that up. You know, If you've done it yourself, you, you leave it. If you hired workers to do it, whatever's left, you've gone through and harvested once. All of the stuff that's left behind, the stubble, the little bits uh, that can be gone through and, and more grain found from it, that should be left for the poor. And then the poor should get off their ass and go out to the field and, and realize that they were given a gift. That the landowner could have went through and taken everything, but they left behind the things after the harvest that were still there and still usable. And they can take the time to sift through because they don't have jobs. They, you know, they're, they're not full-time gainfully employed. They're not running businesses. They're not managing and growing and doing their own fields. They're not buying seed to replant. 
their own fields. They, they can go be responsible for themselves. And the, the, the promise of communism has always been that we'll take care of everybody. We'll take care of everybody. But when you start looking at taking care of everybody, what you're saying is that if somebody doesn't have something, it should be provided to them. Where the way that this country is supposed to be, the way this country is supposed to be is you would be provided with an opportunity. And there should be so many opportunities and so many different choices that the only real question is which one will you take and how will you use it for yourself. And if we are to do something for somebody, to actually bring the food to somebody because they need it, then they better be sick or crippled or something like that because if they can get up and move, they should be responsible to do something for themselves. And getting an EBT card charged up and going to Walmart is not enough. But I think one of the things we have to understand is why there were so many people that found the concept of communism appealing, especially prior to this time. At this time, people are beginning to find out it ain't all it's cracked up to be. But in the you know, 20, 30 years leading up to about this period of time, there was a lot of people in the U.S. that thought this communism thing might be a good idea. A lot of it had to do with racial injustice. We've talked about that. They were the only ones saying anything about it. Um. But a lot of it was just people looking at general injustice and thinking that, you know, leveling the playing field sounded like a good idea. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. There's very few things I trust the state with. The one of the things that I trust them the least with is to use good judgment and wisdom when taking the property of one and handing it to another, which seems to be their primary purpose in life anymore rather than the defense of liberty and the defense of sovereignty, which is probably the only things they really need to be doing. My take by Jack Spirico. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. And click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Okay, I wanted to lead off with uh, actually going back to the wiki and giving you the, the story about what was going on with Alex. Now, I knew some of this, not nowhere near the detail you're going to get here, but I knew some of, of what was going on from an email that came to me from his wife. I, I didn't know how much he wanted to share, so I just simply said he's having some issues, but I'm I, I'm relieved to hear that he seems like he'll be okay now. Here's what Alex says. Under Alex Shrug meets the Joker. I thank Jack and others for filling in for me with the history segment. I had a health problem that put me in the hospital. And the story has a moral lesson, so I'll tell it. Most Wednesdays, I take the bus to the local jail to perform chaplain work. If I can, I stop by the library along the way, as I did this time. As I waited for the doors to open, a man walked up. I'll call him the Joker. He's the type of man you see on the streets at midday. He finds humor in everything and laughs when nothing is funny. He has a girl on his arm who laughs, too, but I don't get the joke. Are they dangerous? Not in this setting. I'm okay. 
After the library, it's a short walk across the parking lot and across the street to my bus stop. As I'm waiting, my heart begins to flutter. I felt the sensation a few days ago. I stand up and realize I can't catch my breath. The bus, my bus comes by, and I step in. I gasp. I need a hospital. Any suggestions? Take the 20, he replies. That goes to the hospital. The bus stop for the 20 is next to the library where I came from. Can I make it? I cross the street and realize, no, I'm not going to make it. I flip out my phone and call my wife. Andrea, I can't breathe. I need help. She calls an ambulance. Help is on the way, and you can, as you can see, it arrived in time. But while I'm bent over sucking air, the Joker comes back along with his girl giggling all the way. He asks me, do you know how I can get to the hospital? I look up and remember the bus driver's instructions. Yes, take the 20. It goes to the hospital. The Joker thanks me and walks away. I notice that he is not walking to the bus stop. He is not going to, he is not going to the hospital. He has taken the trouble to let me know that he realizes that I'm in trouble and he's leaving me to die. I feel sorry for him. He has made a bad mark on his soul. Probably not the first, nor likely the worst. And later, I realize I have erased a bad mark on my own soul. When the Joker had asked for help, I tried to help. I changed so much from the man I once was. The ambulance shows up. A woman in the parking lot flags them down. Good for her. My heart is beating so fast, uh, they can't get my blood pressure. The count is 220 beats per minute. They are not sure they can get me to the hospital in time, so the paramedic injects me with something. He has only used twice in five years he's been doing this. He warns me that it's going to feel very uncomfortable. It's always uncomfortable when your heart stops. Two seconds later, my heart pops back into rhythm. It works. Good thing. The hospital staff recommends a procedure to fix the problem. They say the king of muckly muck has flown to their hospital for this procedure. I say, he's an idiot, and they laugh. They do the procedure. Apparently, I'm okay now. I have to take it easy for a week or so. No problem. The history segment is not taxing to my heart, except when there's a world war. I, pr I will probably see the Joker again in my travels. He did me no harm. I forgive him his insult. God knows I deserve plenty of insults for my past misdeeds. This just balances the scales. It is all good. Well, first of all, I'm glad that Alex is well. Second of all, I'm not so forgiving of people like the Joker. If he actually realized how in need of help Alex was and then turns his back on his fellow man. I'm not so forgiving of people like that. I don't tend to hold grudges, but I, I do tend to hold uh, people accountable, especially at the time of indiscretion. And uh, I just say that we would be better off with less people like that in the world and more people like Alex shrugged in the world. But yet Alex makes a good point. I'm not the man I used to be. And he's grateful for it. I would tell you in many ways I'm not the man that I used to be either. I'm a much more um, gentle person today than I was at one time in my life. I may be just as quick to anger, but I am far less quick to uh, to actually strike or cause any harm to anybody. I think being angry in voice is one thing; being angry in deed is indeed another. And I know there's some uh, precedent though for controlling your words in order to control your actions. So I work on that as well. I think that change has even been evident over the uh, the course of the show. But anyway, I'd like to welcome Alex back. I'd also like to tell you, uh, we have a new person on the, uh, on the wiki, uh, going by the, the name Southpaw Ben. And, 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 and Ben wrote me, uh, last week and said, Hey, I did some stuff for episode 1950 for you. And Ben wrote me today and said, Hey, I'm gonna keep 
chipping in and adding to uh, the history segments as long as Alex Shrugged is okay with that. And my response is, well, go ahead, Ben, please. Uh, I think that it'd be nice to have some different perspectives. Some days I'll read stuff from Ben. Some days I'll read stuff from Alex. I'm sure all days I'll read something. But I think anybody should feel free to add to. Um, I think the only way we should be taking away from somebody's stuff on the wiki is if we figured out it's not right. It's inaccurate. Um, there is an edit history so we can see that, but I don't think that anybody should be afraid to jump in on the wiki at any point and contribute. The way Alex ended up doing what he's been doing for us, which is such a gift, is he just did it. That's how a wiki works. This is just like Wikipedia, except it's our Wikipedia, right? So any of you out there that would like to contribute to the wiki, whether it's history segments, whether it's anything that you think is related to what we do here, get on there, check it out. And there are videos that show you exactly how to do it. So I want to welcome Southpaw Ben to um, to the wiki and uh, try to read at least one of his segments this week for you guys. I really wanted to read one of Alex's segments since he got back from all of that and then immediately made sure that he did an episode. Uh, Alex, thank you, man, and, and, and thank you for being the kind of forgiving soul that, that maybe can teach us all a bit of a lesson. Uh, next up, uh, I want to give you guys a, a little bit of what I got done this weekend at Nine Mile Farm. and Because uh, it's good for you guys to know that I'm not just sitting here talking, I'm actually pretty good at doing uh, one of the things I did is last week, or the week before actually, I'd already gotten one of my 255-gallon aquariums set up and uh, on a double stand, double stack stand. And uh, I had ordered it from Walmart because it was the best deal I could find on a 55-gallon startup system, you know, with the pumps and everything with it. And uh, so they shipped me one, and then they said the other one's coming, and then they sent me a thing that said it's, it's arrived, and it was signed for by some guy named Jose, uh, in, in, in like East Texas somewhere, and I'm like, I don't know who Jose is, but I'm not him, and he doesn't live here. And Jose apparently works for a Walmart receiving warehouse, so they sent it back to Walmart because it was damaged in shipment. Uh, they probably smashed the shit out of it, UPS did, I imagine. And uh, But they thought I got it, even though they got it. So I'm like, well, just send me another one. They're like, we're sorry, we can't. Why not? We don't have any more. Walmart. Largest retailer in North America. Don't have another one. Nope. Not going to have one. I don't know. Give me my money back. Went down to uh, PetSmart, and they had a very similar setup uh, from a company called Top, Top Fin, and I got that. So I've got 255-gallon aquariums in the office now. There's just some goldfish swimming around in both of them doing something called cycling. Uh, but as we start using them for doing things like maybe some breeding of Mozambique tilapia and some other things that go with the aquatic system around here, you'll see more video of that coming out. And uh, one of them is just going to actually just be a really nice-looking community tank for me to sit here when I'm podcasting and be in a better mood so I can do a better job for you guys. That'll be the upper one. We'll do that. Eventually, there's actually two 40-gallon breeders going to go in here. And then I got another wall. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it yet. I might put in 229s or something like that. So this is going to be a wall of water, my office. I think it'll be good for my mental state and my psyche and definitely good for some of the things we can do for the aquatic and aquaponics system. On that note, another thing that I was able to get done this weekend uh, was, one, I had two places on my property with the water just shut off in the last freeze that I was just like, I'm going to wait and see if it's going to freeze again. You know, before I go fix it, it, it didn't. So I, I fixed two or three three spots this weekend with broken pipes. So I have water back to the prop, you know, everywhere on the property now. So that's a good thing. That's always a good thing to have. And it doesn't look like we have any freezes coming anytime soon. We have an overnight low, I think, Wednesday night of 36 degrees. 
I will treat that as though it says overnight low of 32 to 30 degrees because I've learned that what they say and what I get are different and we will probably have a mild freeze to mild frost that day. But I don't think we'll have to worry about blowing pipes up or anything like that. On that note, I also got my greenhouse closed in, so now the doors actually close and they seal and they do what they're supposed to do. So that night I will close the greenhouse up, I'll close all the windows, and I will probably, just to be careful, toss a propane heater. I'll probably go out about midnight so that the heater will make it till morning. I'll do two little canisters in one of my big buddy heaters and set it out there and uh, let that run through the night so that I don't lose some of the plants that went in. So I also got some stuff planted in the greenhouse. I, I put in, I'm not really worried about low, you know, mild frost or anything with this, but I put some watercress in. Um, I was thinking, you know, stuff that I could plant and I was at the, the grocery store for some stuff that I, I needed to buy, uh, for another video I did this weekend. And I noticed they had living watercress. I'm like, really? So it's a nice little, you know, basically looks like a hydroponically grown plug on it. So I just brought it home and, ripped it in two pieces and put the smaller piece in the deep water raft bed in the quail aviary and took the other end and stuck it in the flood and drain system. So that's going. I also planted what 18 lettuce plants, uh, six of each, uh, actually six, um, black eye, black seeded Simpson and six romaine lettuce plants into the uh, deep water raft and five kale plants and put another kale plant into the, uh, Flood and drain. I planted some cilantro, and I'm sure I planted something else that I can't remember. So all of that went into the aqu aquaponic system. I don't have any video of that stuff yet because they're all little plants and they've just started. Uh, as I was cleaning up the aquatic system, the pond-based system, uh, I found a flower pot that I, I cleaned out because it had some you know dead top growth on it. And when I cleaned it out, I found three little purple tubers in there. Well, those are Japanese purple sweet potatoes. So David, my buddy, had actually found one last week. So we just pop those into the uh, flood and drain system, and we'll see if any of them come up. If they do, we'll have an endless supply of sweet potato slips for all of our growth this this year. They should be fine in the greenhouse at this point, and they probably won't start growing until it gets a little warmer. They'll let us know when it's time. So I think a, an interesting thing I, I really hadn't thought about, but a lot of people start sweet potato slips by putting a potato in a, a pan of water or whatever. But if you have a flood and drain bed in aquaponics, you can just pop some small tubers in there, and it's going to start sending up you know, a, a ton for you of slips that you can slip off and, and plant elsewhere. So that got done. Um, last week I plumbed in with David's help the two inch return lines. This weekend I also built a new type of, uh, uh, strainer drain system for the tanks that are let, letting the water return through that two inch line that should be virtually impossible to end up clogged up. I don't think it's impossible. I think it's improbable that it will happen fast enough for me not to notice something's wrong and be able to take corrective action. So I think if you left it there for five years, it could build up and become clogged. But I think if you're checking on it weekly or biweekly and maybe just cleaning them off a little bit, you're just never going to have the system plug up again. So there's a video out of that. Um, I will also, through last week and into this weekend, uh, went out and did some fishing and was able to bring home 22 one day, 21 the other day, and like eight the other day of various size bluegill and perch and green sunfish. They have been installed in various places within those systems. Uh, so there's a lot happening here. 
An update, though, on the uh, Duck Chronicles. I think I already said this on the air, but I'll say it again now. The Duck Chronicles now are going to begin like uh, the 28th or 29th. Whenever the Ducks get here, they're shipping the 27th, I believe it is, of February. I guess there isn't a 29th this year. So either the 28th or the 1st of March, I guess. Um, Betzer Farms did not have uh, enough ducks to send me uh, my order. So on that week, whatever it is, I will be getting 50 golden layers, 50 uh, silver apple yards, which are an uber cool uh, heirloom duck. Great dual purpose bird. And 15 fawn runners because Dorothy likes those. I will probably this week get their brooder area set up. It was supposed to be set up last week. And since I didn't have to, I did all this other stuff. I'll get it completely set up. And I'll do like a teaser for Season 3 of the Duck Chronicles, which will just show the brooder set up and ready for the ducks to arrive. And we're pretty stoked about being able to brood the ducks in such a great building this time. And uh, to get them, is, when they have feathers and they're big enough that they can't fit through the wire uh, of the duck holding area, they're going with the flock. This will be the shortest brooding period we've ever done. I'm hoping about six weeks to get them flock introduced. But if they can slip through the wire, they can't go because they're going to electrocute the shit out of themselves on the electric fence that we have up and running now around the duck holding area to protect them from predators. Uh, that didn't happen this weekend, but that we've got done in the last couple of weeks, and that's something else that, that's on here that I don't think I talked about online. So we got it. We got a ton of stuff going on right now, guys. We are going to have maybe the best year ever of video content coming off the farm for you guys. All kinds of stuff going on. Once the ducks are up in Adam and they're introduced, I'm probably going to bring in a new group of quail. And uh, so we'll have some new stuff with quail being brewed and stuff like that. I have some big news on the quail front coming. Hopefully by the workshop date is, is my goal, is to be able to release some new stuff about quail. Uh, so... Lots of stuff going on. Anyway, a little bit different of a startup of the show than we usually do, but I, I hope it uh, kind of brings you up to speed on some of the stuff happening in the world of Jack. Uh, the first email I have today is from Jim S. Jim says, Hi, Jack. My question is for you. My question regarding the Dr. Christopher's tissue and bone ointment I just purchased. The ointment didn't come with specific instructions. If you could make recommendations regarding its application to my sore knee. That'd be great. I realize you can't offer medical advice. Just curious to how you used it when you were injured, your knee, uh, a while back, and the way you described your knee sounds a lot like what I'm experiencing. Thanks, Jim. Okay, so, Jim, I want to say, first of all, if your injury is as severe as mine, there is there is no guarantee that, that this stuff is going to give you as good a result as I got. Because my injury was like the edge of whether or not you're going to have to have surgery. And I believe if it was a little more severe, even with using this stuff, it may not have been able to be turned around without surgery. Okay? Uh, so, again, I can't make medical advice. I'm not making medical advice. I'm offering my opinion, and I'm offering feedback based on my personal uses of a product. And while I do sell it through Amazon Affiliates Program as an affiliate, I don't I don't represent the brand. Uh, I, I don't. I don't highly benefit by branding this product. I only benefit if you happen to buy it through my Amazon link. So I want to be clear on that. Um, so the primary ingredient in this stuff is comfrey. Uh, both root and leaf are used in it, and it's used as an ointment. The way I use it is I simply place it on the affected area, and I, I use it all the time. I use it when I have knee problems and joint problems and things like that. I have a trigger point uh, in the fascia of my shoulder, kind of behind the blade. My wife, ironically, is dealing with a 
a, a short-term pain, like wrenched her back in that same spot. I have a long-term. I use it there. Um, if my if I start to get like sometimes using um, the mouse a lot, I, I don't think I'm in danger of carpal tunnel. I try to make sure that I do a lot of things other than use the mouse. Uh, but I'll get some some of that kind of radiating pain. I'll use it on that. I'll use it on any kind of scrape, any kind of shallow cut. Um, sometimes my feet get really dry and I get cracked heels. I'll use it on that. It works fantastic for that. Again, the only place I refuse to use comfrey because I've been warned about is any kind of a deep wound, a deep cut, a deep penetrating wound, because it's such a good dermal regenerator that it can actually heal over and cause it to lock in an infection. The same reason that a doctor might refuse to uh, suture a wound because it needs to drain. Okay, so that's that's kind of what I use it for. As to how I use it, I use it whenever I think I need it. If I'm dealing with an injury, like when I had the knee, I use it at least three times a day whether I feel the need for it or not, and I really rub it in the area. I rub the whole, the whole area, and I try to apply a little bit extra in the areas where there might be pain. For instance, my... Um, MCL and LCL, I don't remember which one's which, but one was like toward the bottom connection and almost toward the top connection where most of the pain were, you know, kind of catty corner on each side of the knee. And right in that spot, I would rub more. Also, the uh, the tendon that came up from the calf muscle to the backside, that was sore. So I'd really rub it in there, but I'd rub the whole knee with it. And uh, all I can say is my personal results were remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And in any instance that I've used this stuff, it's been great. And for years, I was the person that made all my own comfrey salve. And I still know how to do it, and I'll still do it if I feel the need to. When my knee injury happened, I had a big bag of comfrey put aside. And I had all the stuff I needed to make it. But if you can imagine, I wasn't feeling very up to doing much. I mean, for a couple of days, I literally could not walk. And I, I got back here, all the stuff that needs to be done on the farm, I'm trying to do as much as I can, and, and but Dorothy's doing it, and I feel bad. And I, I had already ordered this stuff while I was in California where I, I had the injury so that it would be here when I got home because I, I didn't have a bunch of the stuff made up, and I thought I can get right on it then. And it works so well, I haven't made very much of my own since. It has other things in it that I think help. And while I think making your own medications is a good thing, I think a properly prepared thing is a good thing too. I haven't really found out, found anything else quite like it, but it's simply rub it on. There's one thing I don't do that it says to do, and I don't really know that it would be necessary. It says once you open it to keep in the refrigerator. I personally think it's some kind of a cover your ass thing or something like that because I don't refrigerate it. It doesn't smell great, but it smells like comfrey. You don't eat it. I guess because of the oils in it, if it's too warm, they could go rancid on you. Uh, but, you know, we keep our house pretty cool, so I don't do that. And the main reason I don't do that is it makes it hard as a rock. And if you're going to do that, what I suggest you do then is take maybe a, a, a tablespoon of this stuff, put it in a smaller container and keep it out, and keep your main jar in the refrigerator so that you can use it until it runs out and keep replacing it because putting it on when it's cold is, is difficult. Think of, think of butter in a refrigerator that almost freezes. It's that hard. But, but that's kind of the skinny on it. I, I really absolutely uh, think it's one of the best products on the market. 
And again, I've heard from so many of you guys that, that say you've used it and it's worked well for you. Back spasms, all kinds of things. And I don't think it just heals. I feel like it also relieves pain. So if I'm sore and I put it on a spot, it seems like pretty quickly I have no pain there. And I guess one caution I would say then is if it's an injury, be careful. Because a lot of times pain has a purpose. It's, it's to tell us, hey, be careful with this area. Swelling has a purpose. It's, hey, this, this joint needs to be immobile for a while. Because when we were born as beings into the world as humans before modern society, there was no doctor to put a cast or a splint on it. And the body had to do something with an injury. And inflammation and pain are ways the body says this needs to heal. So if we use any kind of a pain reducer, uh, swelling reducer, we need to be mindful of the area and not overexert it where we can exasperate the injury. Just my thoughts. All right, next question is uh, a question from Al. Al says, how short is too short for a podcast episode? Detailed, I just started a political commentary blog that is mainly focused on videos, uh, and I'm purposely making videos five to six minutes longer Uh, making the videos five to six more as I want to target millennials with a shorter attention span. You mentioned your show on Five Minutes with Jack that if you have a video, uh, you, you have a podcast too, but I'm hesitant to do five minutes. It seems short for anyone to care about the format. Heck, even five minutes with Jack was 15 minutes or so. What are your thoughts? Should I record a longer rant, edit one for video and one for audio? Should I put them up and not worry about it since no one is listening anyhow? If you look on the, at the site, uh, yes, I know I need more content more often. I've been teaching myself video editing and getting much better at it, uh, talking to no one comfortably, so I expect to have rants out multiple times a week, eventually one a day. Thanks for your help, Al. Well, first of all, Al, I would have been very happy to look at your site, and I would have been very happy to give you a plug for your site. Oh, I see. It actually is there. OMRants.com. So it's OMRants.com. I'll take a look at it. Um, and uh, I will uh, put a link in the show notes so others can take a look at it. So that's one of the first things. If you email me about your site and you're asking for advice on it, always make sure you include it. Obviously, maybe hotlink your site so that I can give you a little free buzz. So OMRants.com. Anyway, so let me tell you the story of how survival podcast started. So when I started doing survival podcast, um, after the first couple, three episodes, when I was just kind of figuring out how to do it, it, it turned into a podcast that ran about 45 minutes to an hour. And that was based on my drive to work. And you know what everybody said? Oh, that's too long. No one will ever listen for that long. And I'm thinking people sit and listen to talk radio all day long, all day long. And then, you know, um, People said, well, five days a week, an hour a day, my God, no one will listen to that. And you know what I thought? Screw you guys. You're not doing a podcast. I'm going to do whatever I think is right. So you might think that would be leading you toward doing longer podcasts there, Al. And the answer is no, I would not. I think screw everybody else. You should do what you think is right. And this is why. You will attract people that like what you're doing. There's over 300 million people in the United States. 300 million. And I can tell you honestly that if you can build an audience of 25 to 50,000 people, you're not going to have like retirement level income or anything, but you can make a decent living off of that. And if you can't, your problem is you don't know how to monetize what you have. 
That, that is easily, 25 to 50,000 listeners is easily all someone needs to replace the average American household income uh, in America today. Maybe not household, average American individual income today. You know, make 30 or 40 grand a year. And most people can stop working a job with that, or at least they can work a, a part-time job or do something they like, or they can take that $30,000 to $40,000 income and build it into a $70,000 to $80,000 income. And at that point, if you can't live on $70,000 to $80,000 a year, either move out of New York City uh, or San Francisco or what, what have you, which with a podcast business you could, uh, or learn to manage your money. I mean, you can live on that. Plenty of people live on less. Uh, so I, I don't think you need to so much worry about People who won't listen, you need to worry about people who will. Now, five minutes. First of all, I think that's a beautiful time limit for videos. In fact, I think it, it, it for a lot of people, it actually edges on the long side, right? The people actually like short videos. Uh, on a podcast, the only downside I can see of a podcast being that brief will be that when you have a hundred episodes, somebody will find it and they'll burn through it all in three days. And if your frequency is not sufficient, that there's something new for them every day, they'll go away. But that's a nice problem to have anyway, isn't it? And if you don't think that's the case, I'm telling you, I, I've got you know over 1,900 and what 1,951 episodes out. Let's call it 1,900 episodes because there's been rewinds and stuff like that in this. So 1,900 episodes. I hear from people. I found you and went back to episode one, and you know I'm six months in now and I'm almost caught up. Yeah, it happens. It happens. So I think it would be the only downside. And the other downside would be that it doesn't leave you a lot of time to, you know, my intro segment's longer than that. So it doesn't leave you a lot of time to really talk to your audience. As far as doing two and editing one out, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. The only thing you might do is if you come up with some piece of this that's more personal to your audience... Uh, you want to keep the videos down, then just keep talking and then just spew out the audio for the full duration. Um, you might even use that as a hook. You know, I'm, I'm here with you guys five minutes a day, but to hear a full ten minutes, tune into my podcast, right? But I don't think you have to. The beauty of doing a, po a video and then making a podcast out of it is you just you just render the file as an MP3 and upload it. Throw it on a blog and you're good. I mean, it's literally five minutes of extra work. The computer might take longer than that to do it, but it's five minutes of extra work for you, and now you have a podcast on the platform too. So why the hell wouldn't you? So my view is do what works for you and go do it. Go make it happen and stop worrying about what other people think. Because I know when people say, well, I'm going to do a video cast. It's going to be two hours long. I'm like, I'm not listening to two hours of video. I'll listen to two hours of podcast, but I'm not listening to two hours of video. The video requires me to be at my computer sitting there. Podcasts I can throw on my phone and walk away, but you know I can listen to two hours of video on my phone. Just not look at it. Though that doesn't work real well with the YouTube app, does it? When you close it down, it stops. But then I think of people that have huge YouTube presences like Stefan Molyneux. He does videos anywhere from 30 minutes to two and a half hours. He's got way more larger of an audience than I do. So... Then I think of people like, I can't think of your name now, but it's like Callie or Kimmy or some shit like that that is like this tech podcast. I haven't even checked on her in years. But she did these little like six-minute tech podcasts, one a day. And she was one of the hottest podcasts on iTunes. 
big time rock star at the conventions and stuff like that. The like the WordPress stuff and all that stuff. Like people paid her big money to come just talk about it. They do five six minutes a day. Now she was spending. I can't think of her name either. I've got it wrong. It's not Callie. Whatever her name was, she was spending like six to eight hours to produce these little like six minute video casts. You know of, of what's going on in the tech space, but it worked for her. So I think anything can work. Sometimes I wonder that my podcast hasn't gotten too long, and sometimes people tell me it has, but a lot of people love it the way that it is, and I've always looked at a podcast as if you're listening to a segment and you don't like it, that's what it fast-forwards for, and that's one of the beautiful things that podcasts have over terrestrial radio. Um, this next question, I'm going to change a word in it. Some of you know what word I'm changing. Uh, others just will have to roll with it as it is because I'm on a new path here with this particular word. Question, Jack, from Jake. I'm curious to know your view as a modern voluntarist on our national parks, monuments, and forests. Do you support government's involvement to protect them? Like you, I'm an avid outdoorsman, and I've heard wonderful things you've had to say about wilderness areas in this country. I agree. I cannot even imagine a world where national forests of Appalachia have been destroyed uh, by strip mining. While I'm a strong um, voluntarist and libertarian, I firmly support the federal government protecting these lands for future generations to enjoy the natural world. Even as a believer in the Tenth Amendment, I'm horrified at the prospect of transferring federal lands that are used for hunting and outdoor recreation back to the states. My question for you is, do you support the protection of these lands in the existing paradigm? And if so, how do you reconcile the support with your voluntarist philosophies? Thank you, Jake. So a voluntarist, which is one of the thing, one of the many things I am, believes that all actions between all individuals should be consensual and force should not be used on anybody uh, and coercion should not be used on anybody. It's not harming anyone which taxation is the very definition of those things. I'm taking your property that you rightfully earned in the name of the state against your will, and if you don't give it to me, men with guns will come make sure you give it to me. We'll either take it directly from you or we'll put you in a cage or we'll do both. So obviously I'm opposed to taxation, but I also pay my taxes. Do you know why? Because I don't want people with guns to come take the shit that I have and put me in a cage. I believe that there's a better way to do all of these things. I would put the things like national parks, etc., under the banner of what we would call in, in history the commons. And I, I, in some ways I feel like if we ever were to evolve into a voluntarist society, there'd be more, not less, commons. Well, there'd be more, but, but, but we're not there. We're not even going to go there today. How do I, how do I, you know, look at this today as a pragmatist? Because above all things, no matter what I really believe at my core, I'm, I'm a pragmatist first. This is the way things could be. This is the way things should be. This is what we should be striving for. But this is the way things are. Okay. So I, I imagine this is because Trump is talking about taking a lot of federal lands and putting them back in the hands of the states. Okay. If you're opposed to that, what you're saying is, I trust the federal government to keep these lands protected, but I don't trust my own state. Think about that. In general, the way I look at it, I'm for protecting these commons by whatever means is most effective at the time. So what I have to look at then, if you're saying should the state do it or should the national uh, government do it, is where if I'm going to actually be politically active, where do I have more say-so? 
Is it easier to swap out a, a senator that goes to D.C., or in my case, a senator that goes to Austin? And the answer is definitely a senator that goes to Austin. Is it easier to swap out a member of the House that goes to D.C. or a member of the House that goes to Austin? It's way easier to swap out a, a, a state House rep. So if the people are actually going to have the greatest voice, and I think that in general people do support preserving these areas, then having it in state control seems like a pretty decent idea. And some states do agree. I mean, Pennsylvania is literally riddled with state forest and state game lands and, you know, state parks. And I guess when people like think, okay, well, if the state of Georgia or the state of North Carolina or the state of California or the state of Montana were to control these national parks, all of a sudden there'd be an oil drill, you know, rig around every corner or something like that. Well, what about all other state parks? What about all their state game lands? What about all their state recreation? If you look, there's like I bet you it's billions of acres that are that are protected for public use that are protected at the state, county and local levels combined. Have you ever thought about the fact that when there's like one of the places I can think of in Arlington that I used to fish It's a green belt that runs for like three miles long, and it's, it's, it's hundreds of acres. And it's just seen as this little city park that anybody can go to. It's, it's quite environmentally protected. There's no gas drills on it, even though they're all over Arlington. In fact, they said you can't come in here and do this. This is a preserved area. The, the state of Texas isn't doing that. The Washington, D.C. is not doing that. The city of Arlington has put that land aside and protected it. So if you're going to trust government with this function, it seems to me that the closer that government is to the people, then the, probably the more beholden it is to the people, and the more likely it is that if someone starts to allow something to go wrong on these lands, that the people that are voting to do it can be gotten rid of. So I, I'm very much for a, a lot of this federal land being ceded back to the states, because I think the other side of protection is also access. And there is massive amounts of federal lands that have become very difficult for people to access because of additional federal regulations that say how and where and when you can access it. So it doesn't do me any good if there's a whole bunch of wilderness in my backyard if I can't go to it, if I can't get to it. Well, we got to protect it from the oil companies. That doesn't have anything to do with me camping and fishing and hunting and foraging and hiking, does it? Nothing at all. So as a pragmatist, I'm very much for not only protecting this land, but expanding it. It's one of the weaknesses in the state of Texas. There's not a lot of large-scale protected lands where one can go hunt in the state of Texas. There's actually a lot of it where you can fish. But hunting's a little more difficult to come by compared to someplace like Pennsylvania. And so I, I don't want government to take land. But, back to being a pragmatist, government steals every penny it has. I will concede that. As a voluntarist, I am dis I'm dis just fine. I'm despised by it. But I pay my tribute to Caesar because if I don't, they will come take it. They will take everything I have. Conversely, even though I think it could be done better, I don't go without any benefit. I, it's not like there's no benefit to the money that I pay in. 
It could be better served, but I do get something back. I do have relatively decent streets to drive on. That's a legitimate statement. In spite of the fact that I, I believe in the next 10 years we'll have some cataclysmic you know, collapse of a bridge or an overpass and everybody will go, I don't know how this happened. In spite of that, most of our infrastructure is in somewhat decent shape. I, if somebody tries to break into my house, I do have a sheriff's department that's very responsive. Um, I did spend time fishing this week, and, or last week, and I, all the places I fished were publicly accessible due to public parks, city-level parks. So it's not that none of this stuff you know, gives any benefit back. So if they're going to steal the money anyway, and they're going to use the money anyway, then I would much rather us put aside more public lands and manage it properly, and instead of seizing it through imminent domain and shit like that, go out and find places that actually could be beneficial, that when you talk to the landowner and say, we'll give you this much of a stolen money for it, he'll say, I'll gladly take it. I'll gladly take it. And, and, and then make that as accessible as possible to people. And I think one of the problems with the national commons and the state commons and the city commons that, that I've seen happen, it's more, and the bigger you go to, you know, state more so than local and, and federal more, more so than state. Accessibility. This concept that the wilderness needs to be preserved by keeping people away from it. We need to create, you know, make it more difficult to access. Only the guy with the backpack that climbs over the mountain can get to it or whatever. Um, It is completely back, ass backwards. Because people protect the things that matter to them, and the things that matter most to people are the things that they have in their lives. The reason that Jake probably feels so passionate about this is he, he goes out onto those lands, and he goes out and uses those lands. He hunts and fishes and, and travels them. The more accessible to people you make these commons, and the more of them that there are, the more aggressively the people would be willing to defend them. So, as a volunteerist, I think stealing money is wrong, and we shouldn't be doing it, and there should be some way that we can come up with as an evolved, enlightened society to provide commons that all people can access and use without overstraining their resources other than the state. However, since the state's doing it now, I think we should endeavor to make sure the state is doing the best job it possibly can under this, the, the, this pragmatic viewpoint. And I think that the more we move it to the local areas, the more that's probably the case. And it's definitely the case the greater recourse there is when those lands are not protected, when they're not made accessible. Because you can email your state, your, your senator you know, that goes to Washington, either one of them, tomorrow, and you'll get a canned response. But tell them you want to meet with them and discuss it with them. It ain't going to happen. They'll meet with you if you happen to tick a box for some kind of photo op they're looking for this month. But I, I know tons of people that have sat down and talked to their state senator and their state rep face-to-face -face for a good 30 minutes that want a photo op. Those people are a, a lot more accessible. And if you can put together a coalition of a few thousand people saying, hey, there's a problem here, and they're all hitting their state reps at the same time, you can get shit done at the state level. And you definitely get shit done at the city level. It might be too easy to go the other way. We don't like, there's a park up in Plano that they're talking about getting rid of because it's too wild and it attracts coyotes and they come to my neighborhood and I'm afraid they're going to eat my cat. 
So when they heard they were going to park, they were thought they were going to get green grass and swing sets and shit. And what they got is this beautiful wilderness park. And, and, and I don't like it. Well, it was wilderness before they made it a park, you idiot. You moron. You know? So th that's a case where, okay, they made it a park, but they kept it wild. And, and now, yeah, maybe it could be leveraged the other way. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I am definitely for protecting our, our, our public commons uh, so that they can be used and enjoyed and preserved for all. Uh, exactly how we do that, I think we have, it's a moving target. We have to work as we go. So this next question comes from Dave. Dave says, how does Tardline beat Parachute Cord six ways from Sunday? Does Tardline impede snares and traps from its scent? I was browsing the bug out, bug out bags list to help refine my packing list. I found a PowerPoint you created that I had not seen before. Then I realized I haven't heard you mention Tardline and all its uses in a while. And it would be great to hear about some of those uses again. Um, if there is some more time, maybe you could expand on some more on your trapping experience, which animals are most useful to trap for food and fur. Thanks for everything you do, Dave. Dave, maybe I'll do a trapping show maybe next week or the week after. Because that's, that is not a segment. That is a show. Um, but I would tell you probably the most all around useful animals that I trapped as a kid running, and this would not be snares, this would be leg hold traps, uh, would have been a toss up between muskrat a raccoon. Uh, both of them had a decent fur price, were abundant so that you caught enough of them that you could you know, consistently partake from them, and both of them are pretty good eating. And the people that say raccoon sucks don't know how to cook a raccoon. Um, and again, growing up at the age I was and the place I was financially and all, you didn't throw away meat like that. You just didn't. Uh, so I, I guess I learned how to do it. So those would probably be the two most useful. And some people say raccoon, or I mean, sorry, muskrat. It's a big rat. It's it's it eats all vegetation. It's it's a it's a mild meat. It's like it almost tastes like a mild version of bear. If you've ever eaten bear meat, um, it's it's pretty good stuff. Don't worry about the musk. Don't let it. The musk is for their fur to keep the the water off of it. Um, but as far as uh, using tarred bank line for snares. Um, I don't believe that tarred bank line or the inner parts of parachute cord are ideal snare-making material. And I would say as a trapper that for some animals, especially things like fox, um, the scent may in fact be an impediment, uh, but neither one would be good anyway. If you want to make snares, you want to just go... Snares are cheap. Go buy proper metal snares and keep them in your kit. Or... Um, you can make pretty good snares out of picture hanging wire. And uh, if you really want to do like make your own snares and create a one-way uh, slide on them, uh, you take something like a nickel, put it in a vise, and bend it at about a, uh, about a 45 degree angle and drill a hole through it, uh, through both sides of it. And then you use that to make your snare stop. And it, you, you put, attach the, the, the standing end of the wire to one hole, put it through the other way, and, uh, like pull it like a, a loop. And it's, it's pretty, pretty damn resistant against backing off. But generally with wire snares anyway, you can just twist them. You don't have to go through all that because as the animal pulls and it tightens down, they don't understand how to get out of it. And so, um, wire for your snares, okay? Um, the way the tarred bank line so beats parachute cord is mostly how much you can carry. 
you can carry just a shit ton of tarred bank line in a very small uh, package. If you're going to buy it online without being able to touch it, and I honestly recommend this even when you're buying it offline, because unless it's open and you can feel it, unless you can take it out and see if it's all the way through, uh, Catalu uh, Manufacturing is who I recommend. It'll be labeled CMI Twine. Uh, 100% nylon, tarred, braided, and if you don't see all of those things, don't buy it. The size I recommend the most is uh, number 36. It's it's just kind of a good balance. That gives you a 320-pound tensile strength. That's a lot of tensile strength. And one standard spool of it that weighs about a pound is 550 feet. Now, if you've ever seen a 1,000-foot roll of, of, of parachute cord, It's a lot. And yeah, I know, you can take it apart and splice the lines together, and it's a pain. Have you done it? Have you tried it? It's kind of a pain in the ass. And because it's not tarred, uh, those knots don't bind as tightly. Uh, the cord itself is useful. I like parachute cord. I always have some parachute cord as well, but the number one thing that I go to is tarred bank line. I use it a lot for, for the, what I call fish snares, which are just simply limb lines. And I think that in, in most situations, you're going to be far more productive running limb lines for fish than snares for animals. Uh, you really are. It's just a, a way to go. Uh, to do that properly, you either need snell hooks or snap swivels or both. And I recommend when you're running limb lines, you always run swivels, whether they're snap swivels or just inline swivels, because fish, when caught on limbs, tend to start spinning, and it causes all kinds of problems. You put a swivel in there, that goes away. It simply binds better and tighter and easier. Uh, so it's, it's a space-saving thing. It's a not-holding thing. Uh, when you're doing any kind of lashing, like if you're going to lash together some kind of impromptu shelter, because it's tarred, as you wrap it onto itself, it's, it kind of sticks to itself and binds. And this is why it's very important that when you get tarred bank line, you're getting tarred bank line. That's why I say CMI, Catalua Manufacturing. Because if it's just black twine, it's just shit as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's not worth a damn. So make sure you get CMI twine. So, I mean, the, 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 the skinny again. You can carry more in less space with less weight. It binds tighter. It works better for making trot lines and limb lines. And I would say it would probably make better snare as well if you were going to make a snare out of it. Definitely could be used for deadfall type traps as a trip line. Um, it, it, it just, it's just better. And I, I think that most people that have actually tried both, I think most people that have ever said, you know what I'm going to do? Like the video I put out where I went out and I made a limb line slash jug line out of parachute cord and actually have stripped out parachute cord and blood knot spliced together the twine and then trimmed off the blood knots and did all that shit and, and, and compared that to let's just loop out some, some tarred line and kind of take the twist out of it a little bit and put a loop into it like a cowboy lasso and give it a toss and it just spools out beautifully go, yeah, this is better. This is better in every single way. Uh, I do have a write-up that I did back in August on CMI Twine. Uh, there are other sizes of it, and you know you can decide how big or small you want. Again, I think for just if you're going to just throw something in your kit, 36 is the way to go. It's awesome for what I call redneck repairs. Uh, if you have if you have tarred bank line and duct tape and a pair of pliers and, and, and a Leatherman. And you can't fix something, you probably need professional help. I'm just saying. Or you need a part you don't have or something like that. Let's take another one. 
Okay, so next one comes from Josh. Another podcasting question today. It says, Jack, I did what you said and just did it. I'm 26 episodes in and learning as I go. Finally got my WordPress site to work with all the plugins, but how do you keep your file sizes so small? I produce a 40-minute, one-hour podcast, 40-minute to one-hour podcast each day of the week, and they sound like crap with some kind of high-pitched background sound unless I export from Audacity on a variable setting, which creates 50-plus megaboot files. Thanks in advance for your help and direction. Have a great day, Josh. Okay, so I will give you the software that I use to edit and publish my podcasts, When it was brand new, it was very expensive, and now you can't really get it the same way ever again. It's called Sony Vegas, and it's primarily a video editing software. Um, and it is now, the episode, the edition that I use for producing podcast is uh, version 9.0. The current version is 13.0, which I also use, and I use it for video editing. And I don't know which version this happened, but since Vegas really isn't for doing audio editing, it's really for video editing, the reason I imagine they have audio file outputs like MP3 and WAV in Vegas is simply because you might be doing some video editing and need uh, to do some audio editing independently and then bring it back into your video timeline. So you can generate WAVs in MP3s. I use 36 kilobit per second compression uh, for my MP3s. The latest version of Vegas only goes down to uh, 30 or 64. So I use 32. It uses 64 as the lightest. 32 kbps for audio files is considered FM quality audio. The way I look at this, since I'm sitting here with a $100 microphone in an office that, yes, is pretty quiet, but it has some background noise and hum and shit like that, FM quality is as good as I'm going to do, and it works for all those talking heads on the radio. So I think that's good enough, and it gives a relatively modest file size. So what you're looking for is a audio output tool that can give you the 32 kbps uh, file size that you're looking for. Now, you didn't follow the rule that I gave earlier, which is if you're going to tell me you're doing a business, tell me where I can find it so I can look at it and listen to it and promote it for you. So I, I couldn't go listen to the, the audio problem that you're having. I also am not familiar with what you would refer to as a variable output setting from Audacity. I use Audacity to record my podcast and I output my files as .wavs. I edit them in Sony Vegas. When I do the initial output in Sony Vegas, I put it out as a .wav, which is a huge file. Then I run it through a program called Levelator to bring all the level into volume, especially when I have different segments and people on. That's where it's really important. And then I take that WAV file, the output WAV file from uh, Levelator, put it back in Vegas, throw the music on the end in the beginning because you don't want the music levelated, and uh, put it out as a 32 kilobit per second uh, MP3. This is where crowdsourcing is useful. Since I am not, believe it or not, I don't consider myself an audio expert, an audio editing expert. I consider myself a pretty damn good polished person at editing audio in Vegas, which is something almost nobody does. So if somebody out there knows a program or a method to get smaller audio sizes without this high-pitched whiny problem, come comment in the episode 1951 show notes 
so that Josh can 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 find out you know what other options are available. I know people use a program called SoundForge and stuff like that. It can be pretty expensive and pretty pricey though. As a kind of research to try to help thing, I went and did a file export in Audacity, and the only option I saw was MP3. It didn't actually um, say anything about different file sizes or file types or compression rates as another option there. So maybe I'm just not that familiar with Audacity because I just spit the files out and roll them into Vegas. Um, a resource I would check out is a uh, podcast by a guy who calls himself the Podcast Answer Man. Um, and This may be a question worth sending him. He has all kinds of tutorials and stuff like that, but everything he has, he charges for. And I don't blame him. Guy's got to make a living. He doesn't have an MSB like I do. So if you're going to make a living doing stuff like this, you have to have something to sell to people. But I don't have, I don't use any of it. I haven't used any of it, so I don't, I can't say that it's good. I've listened to his show. I have it in a long time, but when I used to listen to his show from time to time, it's pretty damn good content. Seems like he knows what he's doing. I'll caution you on this though. And so many people in the podcast world are what you would call audio snobs. I'm not talking about people like you that say I don't want a high pitch wine. I'm talking about people that want to, you know, encode in 128 kilobits so that you can hear every little thing in perfect nuanced voice and stuff like that. And when you say to them, well, I want to be able to scale back to 32 kilobits and I want to be able to have decent audio quality, they say, oh, you can't do that. That's terrible. Huh? So I don't know if he's one of those guys or not. I, kind of thinking about the past episodes, he's probably going to edge to that. You know, he's probably going to edge to the 64 to 128 uh, world, but he would probably still know. And it might be an interesting question for him. I guess your other side of this is if, if you're putting out file sizes of the size you say you are, um, then you're probably encoding at 64 kbps. For most of your users, that's not going to be a problem. It's not that flipping big of a file. Where, where it will hurt you is the people that are using like the, the iPhone's podcast app or the Stitcher app. And it won't be that bad, but it just won't. Like when you get TSP in the podcast app and you hit play, it might, even if you're on the cellular network at all, it might stream for just a couple seconds, but then it just rolls. And once it starts rolling, if you jump ahead 30 minutes into the show, it's just there. Uh, and that's part of the reason I keep the file size down. The other reason I keep the file size down is I have people that listen on satellite radio and stuff like, or satellite internet and things like that, and that helps them as well. Um, another option would be to publish alongside it a low bandwidth version, and you could certainly set up WordPress to have two different RSS feeds uh, based on a category and just basically duplicate the post in a low bandwidth version uh, I think you can embed two audio files in one and let people pick and choose, but I've never done that, so I don't know. But check out podcastanswerman.com. Send them the question. If, if you do, let them know that I recommended him. I've always wanted to maybe swap stories or something with him or maybe get on his show and, and talk about how I built a, a podcast in a successful business, maybe have him on here, maybe kind of do, he comes on my show, something like that, and it might be a good first touch just to know that I've referred someone over to him, but that's the best I can do to help you right now. Here we've got an email from someone that's getting shit done. His name is Chris. He has a company called cjknives.com. He says, Jack, I'm a member of the MSB. And I've been listening to your podcast for over a year now. I just wanted to let you know how much you've helped me. 
This month, I am fortunate enough to have a knife featured on the cover of Blade Magazine, and it would never have happened if not for your encouragement to follow my passion. Details, I've had a love for knives my whole life, but listening to Survival Podcasts convinced me to do something with my love for knives. I started making knives about a year ago and came a long way since then, so much so that this month one of my knives is featured on the cover of Blade Magazine. My website is cjknives.com. I can't stress enough how much help you've been to me and my family becoming more self-sufficient and preparedness-minded. And while I'm not quite at the point of quitting my day job, making knives for a living, it's something I'm working towards. Thanks again, Jack Chris from CJ Knives. I think that's cool. And for this guy to be making knives a year, they're pretty fantastic. I'm talking works of art. Uh, you might want to check out his website again, cjknives.com. Remember, if you do send something in and tell me about what you're doing, Tell me about where you're doing it online, and I'll let people know. And there's a link in today's show notes to get over to his website. Actually, before I go on, I'm going to have to give CJ some admonishment here. So when I went to your website, what I noticed is there's a thing that said current knives for sale, and I clicked on it. I learned all about your awesome knife. There was no button to buy it. Uh, there's no place to order. There's no place that it says order knives, and I actually can order knives. You're a custom one-off maker, and maybe you don't want you know, 20 people to try to buy the same knife on the same day because you can't deliver it. You need a place where people can order a freaking knife, not a little thing at the bottom of your About page that says, if you see something you like, contact me. Um, I don't want to pick on you, but I'm going to say, do you hate money? Because when you have a website and somebody wants to buy your shit and they can't figure out how to do it, you're acting like you hate money. So, CJ, don't do that. And for everybody that's listening to me talk about this today and you think I'm being mean, I'm not being mean. I'm not being mean at all because I'm saying this so that you'll know if you get on CJ's site and think, I'd like to buy a knife from CJ, you click on his about page and you'll see a little way to contact him down there and you can tell him you want to do business with him. Because I want CJ to sell knives because that's how CJ becomes successful. CJ, make it easier for people to do business with you and they might do it. There's my business advice today and I... I don't feel singled out because I've been telling people they hate money for a long time. There's Anybody that's been to a workshop here knows that comes out of my mouth at least 50 times at every workshop when people tell me what they're doing and they I say, well, are you doing this? And they go, well, no. Do you hate money? Don't hate money. If you hate money, money will hate you and not come to your pocket. Okay? Anyway, um, this next one comes from Jody. Jody says... Hi, Jack. I apologize about contacting you about an issue uh, you talked about so long ago, but I just heard your podcast on GMOs recently. The GMOs you mentioned all seem to be the ones modified to work with Roundup and other pesticides and insecticides. I wonder what your thoughts are on non-Roundup GMOs, like golden rice, if you're not familiar with that. That's uh, one of the rice that's been modifying to include vitamin A. It makes a lot, it a lot cheaper for lower income areas to stop nutritional deficiencies. Has no insecticidal modifications I know of. I'd love your perspective on this as I've not heard many people talking about it. Jody. Okay, well, Jody, I'm going to tell you first of all, golden rice is a dun 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 publicity stunt. Um, it, it is, it is so not how we should judge the world of GMOs, but it's so how the people that want to defend GMOs want us to. And uh, golden rice is, is, is preposterous as a GMO um, because 
if one wants to create a strain of rice with beta carotene in it, one would not need to use genetic modification to do it with. In fact, there's a wonderful strain of corn, a.k.a. maize, that is orange as the day is long, and it's loaded with beta carotene, and it was not made through genetic modification. It was done through selective breeding. Uh, we can do a lot of these types of things with selective breeding. Another thing is that they make a big deal out of this, okay? But if, if you actually wanted to solve this problem, beta-carotene is one of the cheapest supplements on the planet, and these places they say they're going to end nutritional blindness or whatever, you could put a, a vitamin A tablet in the hand of every person there every day for a 100 years for, for less than the, uh, the rigmarole around the scolded rice. It's not actually being grown anywhere. I mean, people have talked about how wonderful it is, but where are they growing it? And, you know, the GMO industry is saying, look at these activists preventing us from actually getting golden rice grown all over the place. And the reality is that it just doesn't do nutritionally what they said it does. And there ain't no freaking activists anywhere standing in the way of golden rice. It's a publicity freaking stunt. I have an article for you you can read today called Golden Rice Falls Short on Promises. And you can learn all about that there if you so choose to learn more. But let's say that we could genetically modify rice to actually be effective in delivering beta-carotene to individuals who would not otherwise get it, and it wasn't so we could spray it with some kind of icky crap, and it wasn't patented, which golden rice is... So let's say you know this is all bullshit. It's not patented. It's not using what they call gene stacking. It, it literally is a pure thing that doesn't quite work and doesn't quite do what they promise it does. Um, but let's say they could. Would I have a problem with it? probably not probably not I'd be very skeptical being where it's coming from but I, I did a show one time where I talked about these genetically modified chestnuts and as everybody knows that pays attention anyway the American chestnut was all but wiped out due to blight and there are places where American chestnuts continue to grow but they always like before they can actually become productive the blight hits them and they end up you know you cut them to the ground and they cop us back and same thing over and over again and, and it used to be the case that there were so many chestnuts in America that you know they rivaled acorns for how much mast laid on the ground and this blight hit and it was it was brought in by chinese chestnuts which are not quite as amazing as the original american chestnut but are resistant to the blight which is how they brought it here and there's hybrids of uh, chinese and american chestnuts and uh genetic modification has been used on the american chestnut to imbibe the blight resistance of the chinese chestnut But the, the, the chestnut would still be like a 99.9% true American chestnut that's blight-resistant or blight-immune. And when I did that show and I covered that, I said, is there any place for GMO? Is there any place that this makes sense? Is there any place where if we say it's evil, it's bad, it needs to go away, it's going to destroy the planet, whatever, that we're just so entrenched in our, our eco-environmentalism that, that we don't really see the forest for the trees, pun intended. And I had a lot of pushback, and I had a lot of people saying, well, I don't know. And, and my thought was, if we can fix this problem that we created through genetic modifications, then maybe we should. So I don't hate all GMOs, but I can tell you the people behind the technology pushing the science are not doing it for the betterment of mankind, and they're not doing it to, to save blindness of children in the Philippines or something like that. They're doing it to make kabillions of dollars, Uh, they sue farmers when their genetics end up in their fields unwanted. 
Uh, that is known, that is proven, and despite all of the, uh, the anti-propaganda from the, the GMO industry trying to say it's not true, it, it, it's true, and we know that it's true. There is a such thing as the seed police. They go take genetic samples on people's property with no warrant. And if you, if, if you did that for any other reason, you'd end up shot and buried in the ground, and nobody would probably have a problem with it. Since you're not real police, you're trespassing. But somehow these guys get away with it. Um, It's, it, it, it's, it's a very problematic industry. My biggest problem is just that, though. We modify the plants to be sprayed with chemicals, and then we eat the plants. That's my biggest concern, okay? My number two concern is that it encourages poor ecological practices in farming. If we can make a plant for genetic modification that can survive in shitty soil, we have very little incentive left to preserve our soil, which is one of our biggest ecological problems that we have right now. So I have a problem with the, the belief that now we can just dump more chemicals on the dirt and it'll be okay. That, that's my, my number two concern. My number three concern is the, the introduction of genes into organisms that could never have those genes submitted to them in nature. So... What I mean by that is when we take something like a, a gene from a fish and we use um, a transmugenic virus to infect the DNA of a cottonseed and we take the, the, the genetic material from that fish and we put it into a cottonseed, we've done something that nature could never do. We haven't sped up selective reading, which is how they try to make it. We've, we've altered genetic reality. And then coupled with that number three concern is that once we've done that, that seed is now capable of creating prodigy that carry that genetic trait and we can never put that genie back in the bottle and we don't know what it's going to do long term. So that's, that's my number three concern and it's still a pretty big one. And those are my big concerns around genetic modification. I honestly believe that if you do genetic modification to a plant and you don't spray it with ick, that it probably poses very little to no nutritional danger to the people consuming it. But it may pose environmental damages that we can't understand, and it has the ability then again to, to reproduce itself. So once we figure out there's a problem, it's too late, the genie's out of the bottle. Okay. What I'm more receptive to is using genetic science to speed up what we would normally be able to do with selective breeding. I think that actually has an incredible benefit to mankind with far less risk. So, so what I mean by that is, and to be fair, Monsanto's doing some of this now. And I still don't like them, but they are doing... What they're able to do is, is actually analyze 10,000 seeds at the genetic level. I don't know how they do this, but they do. And they say, these are the ones to use out of this group. And now we're going to go out and we're going to take those and we're going to just produce from that group. And that way we get a perfect selection toward the trait we're looking for. So all we're doing is using a filter, so to speak. I think there's incredible value to what we can do because if you think that's wrong, then that's where the GMO people are right. Then you also think it's wrong that we took Seoente and made it into maize slash corn, right? Because Seoente was completely unusable as a grain for man, but man selectively bred it for thousands of years into massive varieties of maize. 
and if you're using a filter, simply get there faster. I don't see that as being much different as Bob buying a whole bunch of jalapeno seeds, planting them in his backyard, selecting all the big fat red ones and growing them again next year and then doing that again. Or maybe even Bob tries to speed it up so he starts his plants as early as possible and is able to start a second group of plants and do two generations in a season so he can go faster. Well, if a guy in a lab coat can look at those seeds and predetermine the ones that should be planted and speed that up and, and, and bypass a lot of that, then we might lose some opportunities along the way, but that's, the small guy can still do that. Gene silencing. I just covered this, and I have a real problem with the idea that we're going to spray a gene silencer into nature. But if we can take an existing organism at, this, at the genetic level and silence a gene in it surgically, so that it's only silenced in that group, that is a lot less concerning to me. My problem with a spray that silences a gene in species A is it may also silence a similar gene in species B, but, oh, it shouldn't. Well, that's bullshit. That, that's, that's, we don't know, but we want to do this anyway, is, is what that is. So I, that's kind of where I'm coming from. I'm not completely, totally anti-GMO, but I'm like 95% anti-GMO. But if you can show me a legitimate, genetically modified plant, and you can show me how it doesn't pose risk to the environment, and you can show me how it's not increasing our ability to degrade our soils and our ecosystems and expand desert desertification, and you can show me a positive benefit that it actually brings to mankind that's long-term and sustainable instead of a short burst that puts money in your pocket, you can show me all those things. I'm not anti-science. I'd be okay with that. And I think probably the best example of this is the genetic modification of the American chestnut. I really do, because what they're doing is they're using genetics from other chestnut species that could occur in nature and doing it surgically and speeding up the results. And that they're not doing it so we can spray the chestnut with Agent Orange. So... That's actually a more concrete example of what seems like a noble use of GMO than golden rice, which seems like nothing but a publicity stunt. On the other hand, there's still this part of me going, do you ever read books by people like Stephen, or, I'm sorry, Michael Crichton? Huh? Do you, have you ignored every warning that's ever come from science fiction writers? You know, we don't really know what we're going to cause to happen by doing this. But then the other side of me goes, you know what, when you get bit by a radioactive spider, you don't turn into freaking Spider-Man. So we can't, we can't dictate our future from the world of science fiction and comic books. Okay? We, we do have, there's a legitimate place for advanced genetic science. The, the, the application has been my biggest concern. I, I know it kind of circles around itself, but basically what I'm saying is, the attitude you're coming at it from, I'm okay with further research and development in it, but I still think the level of caution is not there. We need a much higher level of caution uh, in this industry. Because here's my thing. Oh, well, we could get this golden rice to solving all these problems if it wasn't for all these environmentalists. Oh, but you'd have no problem stacking 17 different genetic modifications into freaking corn that you're feeding millions of people every year that has no nutritional benefit. It's some, one of the most least nutritious foods on the planet, the least, uh, the most empty calories. 
You're putting it into everything in the form of high fructose corn syrup, and you're able to shove that up in the in the mouths of 300 million Americans. But you got this wonderful product in golden rice. You just can't figure out how to save the blindness of children in the Philippines and Africa with. Bullshit. Let's take one more. This one is from Mike. Mike says, I recently started listening to TSPC and have become a big fan. Thank you, Mike. Please keep listening. I'm sure I'll offend you sooner or later and you'll be upset with me. Please keep listening after that because I can't be honest and not piss people off all the time. It just doesn't work. Anyway, just yesterday I listened to your recent show on freedom. I have to agree that most Americans don't want true freedom. My question to you is, do you think there are enough people left in the Republic that truly do want freedom to save it? I ask because I'm a co-founder of America Again. We are a group of hard work that is working hard to restore constitutional control over our government, take this country back from the corruption that's destroying it. You strike me as not being a typical fear porn peddler so that is so prevalent in the prepular community. You seem to be searching for and providing solutions, not just discussing problems. That is why I'm reaching out to you with this question. If you think, if you do think there's enough of us, you might be willing to interview David Zunga, founder of America Again. I would love to answer any questions you may have and put you in touch with David. Either way, uh, thank you for all that you do in the community and the Republic. Well, Mike, I hope you're still listening because this is how I'm going to give you your feedback. Because uh, then I know if you're really listening. All right, so. Do I think there's enough people to restore America to when we were ruled by the Constitution? You may not like this, Mike. When the hell exactly was that? When the hell exactly did equal protection under the law protect all American citizens? When? 1950? When a woman couldn't even get a credit card? 1920, when a woman couldn't, or 19, let's say 1900, I'm not sure about the suffrage movement exactly. I think 1900, 1890, when a woman couldn't vote. In 1845, when black men were slaves. For almost a hundred years after that, when it was illegal to marry somebody that was white if you were black. Or black if you were white. When? When was this nation a constitutional republic that was run as a constitutional republic? What are you restoring us to? This is one of my problems with Trump. Make America great again. What's the restore point? So think of it as a computer. Like, if your computer's jacked up, and you go to a restore point that you've created, you, you kind of want to know when was that. When was that point, and why was that point better than it is now? Now, I'm not being a dick, because there's times in my own life where I feel like America was a better place than it is today. But what exactly is the restore point? Do we need to make America America again? Or is the real challenge making America the constitutional republic? And remember, I'm a voluntarist, right? I would prefer no state. But if we're going to have a state, I'd like the best damn one we can find. Unfortunately, I think that always leads to greater tyranny. But let's go to pragmatism again. Is, is the problem in America not that we've strayed from what we were, but that we've never been able to get our shit together and become what we were supposed to be. I think one of the things that we need to understand and be honest about, if we are to talk about the Constitution as though it is a holy scroll brought down from Mount Sinai or something like that, is the people that put it together were not all about this whole democratically elected representative republic. 
the majority of them argued tooth and nail for a government of the elite, by the elite, for the elite. Fearing that if the democracy existed, and it's a republic and not a democracy. Shut up. If you're going to say that, just shut up, no matter who you are, because you're putting your fingers in your ears and going, la, 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 la. We elect our officials in this country. That part of our system is democratic, and the form in which those officials do their business is in that of a republic. We are a democratically elected representative republic, or at least we're supposed to be. They didn't even want that. They didn't even want that. They wanted one state, one vote, with appointed people to make those votes. There was all kinds of finagling and dealing and backdoor shit so that states got House representatives based on population and two senators. There was all kinds of backdoor shit to simply get it to the point where senators, while they were appointed, were appointed by state legislatures which would be elected. There was all kinds of shit to make sure that your, your House representative from your state was elected. You know the three-fifths argument? You hear the downtrodden people saying stuff, black people saying, I was only three-fifths a person. First of all, you were never three-fifths anything because you weren't alive, your mom wasn't alive, your dad wasn't alive, your granddaddy wasn't alive, and your great-granddaddy wasn't alive. Okay? So it didn't apply to you because you weren't here yet. But actually the biggest tragedy in the three-fifths rule where a slave counted for three-fifths of a person was that they counted it all. You want to have an honest discussion about the Constitution, you got to go there. And you're saying, what, they should have counted for nothing? Absolutely, they should have, if they, in their best interest, they would have counted for zero. Some of you are very mad, some of you are confused, some of you just got the math. Let's say I'm a slave owner in South Carolina. I own 200 slaves. All of my slaves count for three-fifths of a person. How many votes do I count as when I vote for my state representatives? To go to Washington, my, my house member. If you gave the answer 121 votes, you would be correct. Because three-fifths as a percentage is 60%. If I have 200 slaves, each hundred of them counts as 60. If I have 200 slaves, I have 60 plus 60 is 120, plus my own vote. My vote is now worth 121 votes. And that's why the South was willing to make certain deals in return for the three-fifths rule. And if you think about that to its logical conclusion, had the three-fifths rule not been put in place and slaves had counted for a zero, then what would have happened is the South would have been so weak, we probably would have had the ability to abolish slavery long before the Civil War. Had we said, well, they're people, let's treat them like people, because that's a politically correct way to look at it today, okay? And they were five-fifths, one. Then the South would have been so powerful, and the number of votes my one vote would have counted for would have been 201, that, that, that would have probably been the case there never would have been a civil war, and slavery as an institution in the United States would have lasted a lot longer than it did. So which constitution do we want to restore? Which restore point do we want to choose? What year would you reset us to if you could? And there's some answers that aren't that bad. Like 1985. 
1985, most of the oppression of our own had kind of waned, and we hadn't gone and completely run away with political correctness, but there was still a lot of non-equal treatment under the law going on. Which restore point? If you want me to answer the question about restoring America to what it used to be, when would we be restored to? And that brings me again back to my point. Is it more the case that we should be trying to make America into the promise that it always was. And yeah, there's a lot of things that have happened that we have to take back. There's a lot of things that haven't been done. And, and it goes to the crux of the question from Mike. Do enough people want freedom? See, I think that what we have to do with the founders, when we look at them as a total group and the form of government they gave us, which was a democratically elected representative constitutional republic to make everybody upset at the same time, where it should make everybody happy if you understood definitions, was they gave us the ability to create a society, if we craved liberty, that was very liberty-oriented. We could have a nation right now with every modern convenience in the world that would be very, very libertarian, where you could do what you want to do, I could do what I want to do, and until we were damaging the property or the body of another person, nobody interfered with it. Taxes could be next to nothing, and there could be plenty of revenue to do all the essential functions that minarchists believe government needs to do, and we are so far from that. We look like idiots. And all I hear from both sides of the political aisle is more clamoring about what government should do more of. While the right says, well, the government should do less this, this, and this, they have a whole other list of shit they want them to get involved with. And the left, the left is always bitching about what they want government to do, but we give them no credit for the things they want government to stop doing. Generally, I agree with those things. But the answer is no. Not enough Americans exist who want liberty to provide a nation of liberty because if they did exist, we would have liberty right now. The form of government that we have is completely conducive to a society of liberty if those within the society crave liberty. But what do people in our society crave? They crave protection. They crave convenience. They crave a lack of individual responsibility. They crave somebody else fixing their problems. They crave the ability to blame some other group or some other class of people for the problems that they have. In other words, our people are ideally set up to be run by a fascist state. And we are run by a neo-fascist state. This is a neo-fascist nation that we live in. Classic fascism, the government tells industry what to do with itself and lets industry make as much money as it wants, and then government and industry leverage the difference between the classes to both of their agendas. In a neo-fascist state, the government is told what to do by industry, and everything else is pretty much the same. I wrote an article on this, and it says, is America a fascist nation? Does Trump have anything to do with it? I'll put a link in the show notes so you can read it if you haven't read it yet. But that's our, our problem is our people, not our form of government, and not the people that are, are, are doing the, the business of government. By and large, they're giving people exactly what they want. More government, more oversight, more laws, more rules, more regulations. That's what people want. They just want their version of it. Make America great again. 
What is the restore point? Return America to its constitutional roots. What is the restore point? So this is what I, and some of you are pissed, but if you actually think about it, if you're a long-term, this is what I've been saying from the beginning. The promise and the ideal of America is the greatest potential form of liberty that's ever existed in the world. And we just can't seem to get it right. And I think it's because most people worship the concept of freedom, but they have no idea of the meaning of freedom. And when they get a look at it, it scares them. And like a bird that's been kept in a cage for 10 years, and you open the door, and it won't leave, or even if it leaves, it flies out and flies back to its cage where it feels safe, when they realize that liberty and freedom come with responsibility and the potential to fail, they crave the cage. They crave the chains. So, Mike, you decide whether or not you'd actually like to have me speak to whoever this founder of yours is. Because I don't know. I don't know about the work you're doing, really. And I don't know what your answer to my question is. But that'd be the first thing I'd want to know. If you want to return America to anything, what's your restoration point? What should we go back to? Rather than what should we do to fulfill the promise of who we are? It's the way I feel. You asked, so you got an answer. Anyway, with that, if you enjoy this show and the work that I do, you can help support it by... Shopping at tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop on Amazon. See, here's what you do. Instead of going to Amazon.com, you go tspaz.com, enter. You come to a page, and there's a link. You click that link, you go to Amazon. You get to Amazon, you buy your stuff, and you go on with your life. You don't spend any extra money, any extra time, what have you, and you support the work that I'm doing. It's that easy. And every day I have an item up for review. Today is Regency Soup Socks. It's the item of the day. Um, the Regency Soup Sock is basically a mesh bag, and you throw a chicken in it. Generally, I throw like uh, like 75% eaten chicken in it, the leftovers from a roaster, and you tie a knot, and you throw it in a pot, and you make chicken stock to make soup or whatever you want to out of it. And when it's done cooking the chicken for the stock, you pull the bag out, you can dump it out of the bag, and you separate all your meat off of your bones, but you don't have a bazillion little bones laying in the bottom of the pot. It's a really cool thing, so I won't say much more about it. But I will say this. I've talked to him about making chicken soup, and every time I talk about something like that, everybody wants a recipe. I have given you the recipe for my chicken soup, my dynamite best chicken soup there is in the world, in the write-up today at tspaz.com. You can go take a look at that on the site. Again, the Regency Soup Sock, available at Amazon.com through tspaz if you want to support our show. With that, let's talk about the song of the day today, which is the number one song of 1951. Two years in a row, the guy with the number one song, Nat King Cole. The song is Too Young. This song is another one of those just beautiful love songs. And again, you got to remember what's going on. We got like 1945, the, 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 the GIs came back and the baby boom generation started. Well, it, it wasn't all done in a year, though there was a big boom in that 1946-47 realm. It kept going, and man, love was on the minds of the average American big time. And this song is like a quintessential love song. Too young, they say we're too young. It's a theme that reoccurs in music uh, over and over again in poetry and, and Romeo and Juliet, right? Too young to know star-crossed lovers, all kinds of stuff like that. But I think what's going to be interesting is if you, if you, we, as we go through this decade of the 50s, you're going to watch 
and this is this would be called jazz would be the style of this music, but it's not what generally people think of when they think of jazz. But this definitely would be from the jazz world. You're going to see a transition begin to occur here, and while there'll be some more love songs, number one for the year, as we cross the middle of the decade, we're going to start to cross into that world known as rock and roll. And this decade, well, we'll end it with the most upbeat, uplifting song you've ever heard about murder in your life. Yeah, really, I'm not kidding. But for today, we'll stick with you know things that were making the baby boomers boom, love songs, Too Young by Nat King Cole. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.